So we are back with another episode of Regenerative Landscape. This week, our host Dawn is away, and I think she went on a trip to go to her cabin, right? Yeah, she was. Uh, yeah, for kind of Canada Canada Day festivities, I guess. Um, yeah, she was going to the lake. Yeah. Anyways, the rich people go to the lake, and us peasants. Us too, we're just sitting here doing our work and recording the episode. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I have the benefit of being in a nice air-conditioned house. Some people aren't so lucky. I, I think about committing suicide every single day since last Friday. And I thought today's going to be the last day, but it turns out that, well, it's not the last day. I don't know. I don't know anything anymore. Maybe, uh, I don't know, am I going to survive this? Maybe I'll just pass out during the podcast session. I don't know. Let's find out. Anyways, well, so, please, please don't <laughs> just, I want to, I want to iterate, uh, please don't uh, commit suicide. Or if you have those thoughts, please disappear, you know that I passed out and maybe I died. Okay. But you know where okay. to find me. <laughs> yeah, I know we're going to find the body. Yeah. You know, it won't be like that, that kind of situation. After two months, you see like all the cockroaches climbing out from the house. Then you realize there's a body. <laughs> very true (laughs) so shall we just start um talking about the stupid hot weather that's happening in canada let's do it because yeah that's (laughs) pretty recent and still ongoing since i have so much to talk about that so i think (laughs) it started it started happening last friday right and then just throughout the week in alberta in edmonton it was like 36 37 even 38 degrees well at least it was like the dry heat so i did a little bit of research however like it's extremely difficult to find like research based on that kind of stuff because it it barely happens it has never happened before this is like the historical heat wave so Mm -hmm. i decided to talk about this based on my geography i cannot talk it's so hot how how do you say that word geography yeah geography oh (laughs) yeah yeah soon soon yeah after five minutes ten minutes into this session i'll forget how to talk in english (laughs) okay speak latin it's okay based on my limited geography knowledge since i studied that um, back in the university and also in high school i kind of majored in that so as you know that uh there are different climate zones in the world and then there's like the the tropical yeah so around the equator there's the tropical zone where the air rises and makes it super hot so there's the low pressure area and it's like the rainforest area it rains a lot and then because the, the earth it spins from west to east to west. <laughs> mm-hmm. so, so it cre- creates that motion. So the air usually comes from high pressure to low pressure. And around like 30 degrees uh, latitude, there is the, um, what's it called? The horse latitude area. And people usually call it the um, subtropical high pressure zone. And then that's where the air goes down. So the air, like, then it generates the wind from that area. It goes down to the equator, and that's the east east wind area. And then you, if you keep going up in the world map, then there will be the westeries, where, like, Vancouver, that area should be in. So it's blowing the west wind. Um, and there will be, like, the... Um, warm current that blows the warm air into Vancouver and it makes Vancouver 
warm, not hot, but kind of like cool during summer months and then warm during winter months because of the current. It regulates the temperature really well because if it's uh, because it's the ocean, it absorbs heat not that fast and it release releases heat slowly, not not like the land. And right. then somehow there is like a giant heat dome that that that's heat dome that that's what the the weather forecast said and that's what's saying like according to like all the web research you can get it's like a heat dome that's uh coming or covering all over western canada i don't know how that happened because we are not in the subtropical high pressure area so i don't know how that happened like somehow because anyways if something's gonna happen we should be getting like the subpolar low pressure zone which is going to keep us cool like when it usually happens throughout the year, like the past previous, like I would say 50, 60, or even like 100 years, it's like that. That's, that's what keeps this area super cool during summer times. So somehow high pressure zone just came all the way up north because that usually happens around 30 degrees north latitude, right? And we in Edmonton, it's like 56 degrees, something like that. So somehow that thing, it went up 26 degrees all the way up to our area and made this area super hot and super dry. And they said, like, it's even, I read the news article saying that the heat wave in Vancouver, was, what was that place, um, BC? Oh, BC uh, that place that yeah, I forget the name, but yeah, they had yeah, yeah, a few days. Lytton? Start with an L, yeah. Yeah, Lytton or Lytton broke the record and hit, what, 49.6 degrees. That was actually hotter than the Sahara Desert, which was under the subtropical high pressure. Yeah, that's that's crazy. And yeah, again, it's been a while since I've taken or looked at uh, anything with my climate and uh, ecosystem type. Uh, yeah, when I was in university, I took some courses and that kind of stuff. And yeah, it's been a minute, but just kind of remembering, like, if I had to guess, I mean, it has something to do with climate change in the way that we're, at least up here, we're starting to like, we're warming up sooner and for longer. Yeah. And I'm yes. guessing that is playing a role in being able to have that high pressure move further up. Because if we were cooler, I feel like there it wouldn't be able to move that far up. But I think because up here we are trending over the past, you know, few decades. I mean, this is all global, but uh, specifically talking about here in Canada, that um, as we're warming up more, that I'm guessing, yeah, kind of that high pressure is able to, yeah, be able to move further and further up, up to the point where, yeah, like if... <laughs> You know, let's move it all the way up to Alaska if we're just going to keep <laughs> warming the whole the West Coast there and further into Canada there too. Yeah, it's crazy. Like, yeah, this is definitely unheard of. <laughs> yeah, and they're saying like actually the the heat wave that heat wave that just happened in Western Canada and made that place in BC or like let's say just in general like hotter than most places. All the places actually. Yeah, the article said it's hotter than all the places in Europe and every place in South America. So it's only the Death Valley in California that's hotter than us. Yeah, that's that's crazy. <laughs> I started to look into that more, and then I started to link that towards climate change, right? Because, like, I don't know, like a normal person would link it to climate change. Oh, no, I, I'm wrong. I think, like, most people would be like, ah, that's just a one-off situation. Uh, climate change, it's not real. But anyways, I tried to look into, like, some more details. If someone, like a researcher, has linked that to climate change, and surprisingly, I found zero article about that and everyone's just saying oh it's just a heat dome that's it that's it that's all it's talking about it's very hot and that's it until like just 
like five minutes ago, I, when I was preparing for this session, I read one article on the Globe and Mail and saying that it's driven by climate change. But that was the only one. But there's no like scientific research paper. It's just someone like, a, I would say, like a, a journalist writing something that's linking those two together. But there's no like research or scientific research behind it to back it up. And then he quoted something from like the Federal Weather Report back in 2019, saying that it was true because back then they predicted that in Canada, the average temperature rise, it will be one to two degrees more than the world average uh, temperature rise. So which means that Canada is going to heat up faster than the rest of the world. Then it just leaves me thinking that, okay, so here's the thing. This kind of weather, we have to get AC, right? If it keeps happening, if, if, if it's happening every single year, then everyone will end up getting AC in Canada. Where like before, let, let's say 20, 30 years ago, no one gets AC in Canada. And I just remember when I first came to Canada, it was like cool. When I studied like climate back in high school and in the university, everyone's saying, oh yeah, Canada, like Alberta, it's the, uh, what, what was the temperature? Uh, what was the climate? It's like the temperate continental climate. So which is supposed to be very cool during summer times and super cold during winter times. And mm-hmm. then, yeah, when I came here, like I didn't have an AC. I don't, I don't remember I had an AC and it was fine. It wasn't that hot. And then I'm just thinking like certain part of the world, like the tropical area and the subtropical area, they have to have AC to survive, right? Otherwise they are just, I don't know, all die and evaporate. <laughs> <laughs> now with this keep happening in Canada, more and more people are going to get the AC. And you know AC, they use, uh, what's the chemical called? The Freon? Is it the Freon? Freon? Uh, maybe. Yeah, I'm yeah sure. the Freon. I don't know how to <laughs> Freon or Freon. Anyway, like that chemical, it's going to cause the ozone to have a hole in it, right? The more mm-hmm. you use it, the bigger the hole will be. And the bigger the hole will be, and then the, 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 the temperature of the earth will just keep rising. It's, it's just a vicious circle. Like, it'll just keep getting worse and worse. So then what are we going to do? That's why, like, when the heat wave hit, I couldn't sleep at night because it was so hot. I, was just, I just kept thinking, so we really should do something to change the climate because if it keeps going this way, it's not going to end pretty. It's going to end, like, I don't know what's going to happen. It's scary to think about. And then, I don't know, I hope like this kind of event that happened this year, it would, it would, it would be a wake-up call for like other scientists or just citizens or just anyone to start thinking about doing something that's good for the environment. And then, this is our advertisement time. Vascular naturalization, we plant trees, we plant shrubs, we uh, absorb the carbon, right? <laughs> hmm yeah. Not just trees and shrubs. We do wildflowers. We do a whole bunch of things. Yeah. So it's not just longest lawn. It doesn't absorb carbon at all. It does nothing. It promotes climate change and makes like the temperature even worse. But the stuff we are trying to do, it's not like, I don't know. I'm going to say that again. It's like, I don't know. After this heat wave, it's not like, like my pure motivation. It's not even like make money or anything. It's just like, really, we only have one planet and I don't want to die early. Yeah. So, well, that's pretty sad news. So I guess you can share more sad news to make, <laughs> make it even sadder. Yeah, it's, it's what we're here for, to bring the, bring the dourness. Uh, yeah, make everyone you know. sad. Then people can start thinking because when you're too happy, you're too comfortable, you don't think about stuff, and then you just become lazy, you don't do stuff, and then you die, right? So you need to be sad sometimes. Sorrow makes you like, I don't know, gives you motivation, at least for me. I don't know. <laughs> 
Uh, I mean, not everybody's like that, but <laughs> I think I think some people understand what what we're trying to do here. Um, yeah, like I mean, yeah. So to kind of move into an article I found, which is kind of dealing with uh, some climate change stuff, because yeah, with this whole heat wave that happened this week, uh, yeah, you and I, Kevin, we were kind of thinking, yeah, like let's. <laughs> Let's try to find some uh, new stuff to kind of talk about to tie in with that. Because, you know, this whole heat wave is affecting everybody, you know, here where we are here in uh, in Alberta and in Edmonton. And it's, yeah, it's, I mean, I haven't really looked much into specifically this heat dome, but just understanding, you know, these kind of things are going to probably happen more frequently. Um, and, yeah, I think it's... <laughs> um, it's about that time that we need to start figuring out how to kind of reduce these events and how we can better, uh, you know, survive, yeah. adapt, I guess. No one has to do something about it. Otherwise, like, no one's going to do anything about that. We're all going to yeah, Like, we can't keep passing the buck to somebody else. I think it's kind of this is, you know, the time is now to kind of start doing things. And again, it doesn't have to be super big. Uh, yeah, grab things. Just doing the little things to do your part to, you know, maybe not using water as much, and yeah, conserving more land or adapting, uh, kind of the land you already have to accommodate, um, yeah, you know, plants that are more native to the area, so that you know it helps with cooling and carbon sequestration and all these added benefits for ecosystems, which in turn helps with you know, kind of the grand scale of you know <laughs> these climate systems that are happening right now and changing. Uh, yeah. But anyways, yeah. Well, give me a nuclear bomb. I'll shoot the sun. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about that. I'm pretty sure there's a movie about that. Uh, yeah. So the article I found, which was talking about uh, the shrinking cryosphere, which I've never heard the term cryosphere, but kind of when you hear the term cryosphere, like what's kind of the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear that? Cryosphere. I've never heard of that term. What is a cryosphere? <laughs> So yeah, like I don't have the actual definition, but from what I understood, it just basically, like basically anything kind of like on a landmass that's uh, like frozen water, essentially. Oh, okay, okay. So okay. basically any like ice sheets or like anything covered in snow and all that. This uh, article was kind of referring to any of those surfaces as kind of the uh, cryosphere. Oh, no. So it's it's a lot oh, of just like the very high up northern hemisphere and the very bottom like. Does it, does it include the ice I just made in my freezer? Uh, no, <laughs> it's stuff actually covering a landmass. So, okay, if I take yeah, it out, your, your, your ice is not included. Okay, <laughs> See, if you started putting a whole bunch of ice on a piece of land in front of your house, then maybe okay, you can rope it in. Anyways. Yeah, that'll cool down. That'll, that'll cool down the house. That'll cool down the entire area if I have enough ice. Oh yeah, <laughs> Yeah, so where was it? Yeah, so there was research submitted to what's it called? The American Geophysical Union's uh, Journal for Interdisciplinary Research on the Past, Present, and Future of Our Planet and Its Inhabitants. So that's quite a mouthful. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, basically the research submitted has given uh, this journal of researchers and kind of the scientific community insight into the extent of land covered by frozen water and how much the earth has lost from this period when they started doing kind of being able to collect data or decided that they want to collect data from 1979 to, I think about 2016. Uh, so kind of that range. So about 30, uh, 37 years, they have kind of data sets 
to go with this research. So yeah, the areas covered by frozen water are what are referred to as the cryosphere. And it's kind of what, like with the cryosphere, they describe it as, you know, again, all these areas covered in frozen water that also help to reflect sunlight uh, from Earth's surfaces, given kind of a cooling effect. And it also acts as an indicator for, you know, changing climate conditions, such as, you know, changing sea levels, uh, oceanic currents and air temperatures. So kind of mm-hmm. you're talking about all the different air, pre- you know, high pressure Mm-hmm, yeah. tropical systems and whatnot like this kind of ties in a little bit with it because all the yeah all the snow and ice that are melting both in the uh, arctic and antarctic kind of tie into all that as well mm-hmm. um, so well, then, yeah after that i think it makes sense if those stuff are melting like at the polar area then the polar will reverse from a high pressure system into a low pressure system right and then mm-hmm. everything else will reverse then the subpolar low pressure system it will become a high pressure system and become super hot and maybe that's what's affecting us now who knows no one's doing that research maybe i should go back to school and do that <laughs> <laughs> well i think some people are doing that research i just think it's trying to play catch up now i think because mm, i think yeah. more recently in our lifetime uh the idea of climate change and kind of all the you know discipline science disciplines tied into that i think yeah it's it's starting to kind of i don't know i don't know really ramp up but starting to get a little more focus mm-hmm. uh, from what i understand but again with when it comes to research and being able to you know get all this data compile it all and actually you know once it's all been peer reviewed and whatnot actually being able to present that out and show other scientists, the scientific community, and just even the general public. It's a long process. It can be a long process. It can also be a short one. But uh, yeah, these things take time. So I think we're just kind of playing catch up now and hopefully trying to get more resources and focus more into kind of studying this kind of stuff. Yeah, so much research has looked kind of at the smaller scope of changes with with regards to kind of frozen water areas or the cryosphere. Uh, but little has looked at kind of the entire scope of the cryosphere or anywhere there are these frozen waters. Uh, so like the smaller scope, I'm thinking places like, you know, ice sheets, snow cover, sea ice and certain confined areas are kind of your smaller scope. So looking at those kind of on an individual level uh, and, you know, even though I say I call it like a smaller scope, I mean, that's still a big, big area when you think about like when people are studying ice sheets, like they can span quite a bit of an area. But uh, for the purposes of this research that they're talking about, they're talking about kind of compiling basically anywhere there's a decent size of frozen water on a landmass area uh, it's kind of the whole cryosphere but yeah so so yeah research from the study showed yearly estimates of growth and shrinkage of the cryosphere and the trend since 1979 when they started collecting data has seen the cryosphere uh, contracting overall and this kind of correlates with the increasing uh, air temperatures uh, over the decades since this data started collecting and of course you know other data and research has shown that you know rising temperatures have been you know happening much longer than you know before 1979 but just for the purposes of this article that's where they're kind of focusing kind of the research and uh, the results from but yeah basically <laughs> ever since we uh you know kind of industrial revolution kind of i think kick-started um kind of that trend of increased air temperature and climate change and all that kind of stuff. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's been around for a while. So yeah, the trend since 1979 has seen the cryosphere contracting overall and correlating with increased air temperatures over the decades. With the Northern Hemisphere, uh, it has seen loss of the cryosphere uh, quite a bit, while the Southern Hemisphere has seen expansion, which kind of somewhat offsetting the losses. 
Um, so it's kind of a push and pull with both the northern and southern hemispheres. Uh, but the southern hemisphere is not the expansion that's happening in the southern hemisphere isn't happening at at a rate high enough to totally offset uh, basically the melting and contracting that's happening in the northern hemisphere. Uh, but it is helping because, yeah, the southern hemisphere was contracting and melting away as well. Um, yeah, we would see a lot more, uh, a bigger impact from, uh, yeah, these melting glaciers <laughs> and ice sheets mm -hmm. and basically the whole cryosphere. So, yeah, it'd be, I think, a lot worse if there wasn't uh, a little bit of expansion from the southern half uh, hemisphere occurring. Uh, but yeah, research has also shown that while some regions continue to be frozen, uh, they remain frozen for less time. So kind of when you're thinking of these land masses, you know, like in mountain ranges or kind of not really the Arctic or Antarctic, but kind of maybe a little further in on certain land masses where it's mostly snow, kind of thinking, you know, kind of top, you know, northeastern kind of Asia area, kind of Russia, kind of there where, you know, there's a lot of snow covered areas. Um while yeah most for most of the year basically annually it's mostly frozen uh now they're seeing signs that um kind of the average first day of freezing uh for some of these areas now kind of occurs at what like 3.5 days or 3.6 days uh later than in when they first started uh these data collection in 1979 uh and the ice thaw is about yeah kind of 5.7 days earlier uh, now, oh. so yeah, so yeah. we're starting to get uh, <laughs> uh, faster uh, thawing, <laughs> which is yeah. so essentially no ice at all. If it, yeah, <laughs> right. So yeah, climate change is real. Mm -hmm. uh, and then yeah, in this article, the guy from the University of Calgary, he, uh, in Alberta here, uh, what's his name, Sean Marshall, who is a glaciologist. Uh, yeah, the University of Calgary commented on this article saying that, you know, this research and data that's been collected and organized is kind of a good first step to having like a reference um, indicator for climate change or of climate change. Uh, and, he, and he goes on to say that uh, this data, you know, yeah, again, it's a good start and it should, this data should be further examined to determine kind of, you know, how changes in um, albedo or kind of when reference to uh, how much uh, light is being reflected off Earth's surface mm. from these uh, kind of like snow-covered areas um, or like white surfaces, I guess you can say. Uh, so how the albedo impact uh, impacts uh, the climate on a seasonal or monthly basis and how it's changing over kind of a longer period. So kind of looking into the nitty-gritty and kind of more focused uh, with this kind of data and more focused, at least with this guy's comments, more on kind of uh, sun reflection, I guess, off the Earth's surface in response to or tied to kind of cryosphere in the frozen water areas. And yeah, kind of the conclusion with this article, the authors yeah, conclude that this data will continue to help give insight into how changes in the cryosphere will affect uh, ecosystems, plant and animal life cycles, and carbon exchange. So that's like a giant research, right? Because it's going to imagine like animals and like uh, what, what else did it mention? It's like lots of areas, right? It's like, it would involve lots of like scientists to actually contribute to it. Yeah, well, because yeah, this one particularly was just looking at this idea of like the cryosphere, which is a big area, yeah. uh, but it is kind of more focused. But yeah, by the conclusion of this article, they're saying uh, continue to do the research on this on the cryosphere and the effects on it, and on but also the effects on other systems like yeah, yeah. ecosystems overall, 
plant and animal life cycles and carbon exchange, which are, yeah, all these other big systems that play a part and are impacted by um, climate change and these effects from the cryosphere, you know, melting and expanding and whatnot. So, yeah, it's all kind of tied together. And yeah, everybody's kind of got their own little, you know, section that yeah. they're working on kind of tied in with climate change but trying to put this all together i think it's going to be a big uh big task <laughs> it's going to take but, 10 years i would say and hopefully when they have a result when they get like the conclusion it's not too late that's all yeah and, and the thing too is like i think a lot of people understand like there's been predictions and algorithms going on as to you know where these trends and all these different things are going and i think that still gives us a good indicator as to, well, you know, we, I mean, we know because we were kind of involved in this, uh, in this area of study that, you know, there mm-hmm. are, we should start doing stuff now. We should have probably started doing uh, things to combat this a while. But I think with a lot of people, especially when you're <laughs> talking about the whole globe, that uh, you really need to, it, it almost has to be the last possible <laughs> moment before you kind of get everybody on board or kind of yeah. when it's too late. Uh, no, so. Usually that's what happens. Like remember the industrial revolution, London was a, sh- it was a shit show. Like it was so smoggy, but when they realized that it was too late. Right. And then like after that, that was like the Japanese, um, the mercury issue, right. They dumped all the mercury into their land and then they realized it's creating all those weird diseases and the stuff. And when they realized that it was too late. So I just don't understand mm-hmm. why can't we just learn from the history and just this time be like, okay, this is going to be a serious issue. Let's just look into now instead of like down the road when actually something even worse happens. Yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's going to be a struggle to try and convince the large portion of the population to kind of think about this stuff more. But again, you know, with our business and kind of with you know other like-minded people, uh, yeah, all around yeah, the world, and, we can like have an impact on like just have more people that think like us, think green, and I don't know what what word to use. Then, like, we can just start small, like, make an impact on the smaller scale from the community, and see how that goes. And yeah, then, and again, it doesn't have to be these big grand things yeah. that you have to do. It's yeah, it's very if you do these little small things every so often, I think, and you get a, a lot of people doing that. I think they'll be you'll see the benefits of that. Uh, yeah. And for those people who's like super stubborn, who doesn't believe in this stuff, who says climate change is not real. I, I'm just going to say, go f- yourself. Maybe I'll cut this out. Maybe I won't. I'll beep it out. We'll see. <laughs> They're not going to listen to our podcast anyways. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you want to carry on to the happier news? Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's kind of a short one, but um, okay. But at least yeah. we can give the listeners some hope. Mm-hmm. And with this one, yeah, this one's from, um, sorry, excuse me. Just had to sneeze. Um, <laughs> let's see. Yeah. So uh, with this one, it's called Creating Seeds for Growing Perufskite, Perufskite Crystals. And this okay. is from Rice University out of uh, Houston, Texas. And this was from a couple weeks ago. And so, do you know what per? I don't even know how to really pronounce it. Still, uh, perufskite. Do you know what that is? Since you cannot pronounce it, of course I don't know. <laughs> hey, I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe you're an expert on it. And I just didn't know. What is uh, it? 
Anyway, yeah, so it is, uh, yeah, halide perovskite are organic materials composed of mixing lead, tin, and other metals with bromide and iodine salts. And okay. you can apply these kind of compounds that have uh, that share a similar crystal structure to yeah a whole bunch of different things. But mainly, uh, kind of the common thing that most people would know is it's used for uh, solar panels, uh, used to make uh, solar panel materials. Uh, so anyway, so from the Rice University, they discovered uh, the use of creating seeds to grow near perfect two D versions of uh, perovskite. Uh, crystals to form thin films to be used in materials like solar panels. So creating these small film layers uh, compared to conventional thicker layers looks to increase efficiency of uh, materials used for various applications by 17%. So basically, yeah, they found a more efficient way of being able to actually grow um, kind of these crystalline structures used to make, uh, uh, to put all together, make these film layers to be used for a whole bunch of different applications. But kind of the go-to one is uh, for solar panels, making kind of these thin uh, film sheets to be used for them. Uh, it's kind of the main one. Mm. But yeah, so these 2D versions of the material tend to be more resistant to moisture and last longer compared to uh, 3D versions. Okay. Uh, it, yeah. It has been more commonplace for inorganic material crystals being grown from seed, but this study has shown great promise with growing material with organic compounds. So that's why they're able to actually, you know, grow this material. Because when you first hear about it, it's like, oh, that's, yeah, how do you kind of grow what kind of sounds like uh, inorganic materials yeah. into being able to grow it from seed. Like, yeah, it just seems kind of strange. As soon as you say seed, it's like, oh, something plant-based related or whatnot. And there are organic materials in this. It's just, it's also uh, combined with inorganic stuff too, to make these, mm-hmm. uh, uh, to make these crystals. So with that, um, yeah. So the process of the traditional method for, uh, Perovskite uh, material follows similar to something like a kitchen recipe where it's, you know, you measure the certain amounts of various materials and you mix it kind of in this liquid solvent and kind of shake it up. You place the combined materials on a flat surface and yeah, apply a, a centrifugal force uh, to spread the liquid evenly. Uh, so giving it, yeah, like a lot of, a lot of shaking action. Uh, and then as the solvent dissolves out of that mixture, the mixed materials become a crystallized thin layer. Mm. So that's kind of your traditional way of uh, making uh, that material. Okay, okay. And then for how the seed-grown method works, it's pretty similar to the traditional method in that uh, with the 2D materials are grown slowly and grinded into a powder and dissolved into uh, the liquid solvent. The seed-grown material has the same ratio of ingredients as the traditional method, but it is more uniform and doesn't require... um, dissolving of individual ingredients ingredients okay. so basically it's with the traditional method it's putting all these individual things into kind of a a, a vat or something and mm-hmm. mixing it and dissolving them individually whereas the this 2d seed grow method is we grow all the materials so it's all kind of homogenized and all one thing mm-hmm. and then you still put it into a solvent to be dissolved but it's all broken down at the same time versus kind of it being broken down at different um uh, different, uh, not frequencies, mm-hmm. but at different times, I guess. Like one will break down a little bit faster than another uh, ingredient with the traditional method. Okay. Yeah. So the labs involved with this research were able to track parts of the materials that were not dissolved using light scattering techniques and equipment. So this is kind of where the research stuff comes in. Uh, and the research showed that portions of seeds that were undissolved have retained a memory of the perfect slow-grown 
crystalline structure from which they were uh, ground up. And this led to more potential for these materials to be tracked and see the process that would allow the seeds to produce the homogen, homogenous uh, thin films. Mm. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of a short thing that I found and I thought it was kind of interesting of being able to grow these kind of materials from seed and having it be more efficient because they're able to grow it all kind of at one go versus all these different ingredients being uh, put separately, broken down, and then creating whatever materials you want. So, mm -hmm. yeah, I thought that was kind of interesting. So there's hope. There's hope. If yeah, there's hope that you can, you can <laughs> uh, researchers and scientists are being able to grow stuff used for solar panels to make them more efficient. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, there's hope that uh, yeah, we'll get some better solar panels as the years go on. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's kind of all I had. Like, I mean, yeah, that's kind of all I had. Okay, so I guess that's it. Okay. Oh, yeah. yeah. I think I should say uh, thank you for tuning in. Uh, remember to like, leave a comment, subscribe, or hunt you down. See you we, next time. We, we want to hunt you down. <laughs>